Welcome one and all to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Today is Friday, September 10th, 2021. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at NMPBS. And we, uh, as usual, been very busy this week, as I know you have as well, a short week for a lot of you uh, after the Labor Day holiday weekend. But that does not mean we don't have plenty to talk about, and we are going to kick things off as we usually do in our Friday podcast with our line opinion panel. And this week, that is made up of regular Diane Snyder, a former state senator, also a former state lawmaker, Eric Griego, and we are joined once again by Julianne Grimm, editor and publisher of the Santa Fe New Mexican. You may have caught this news uh, this week that Virgin Galactic, which of course is based now out of Spaceport America down by Las Cruces, is actually grounded. We talked about a little over a month ago about their historic uh, space flight as they get ready to do commercial space flights from Spaceport America. But it has been revealed now through some reporting that there were issues with that flight that have now led the FAA to ground uh, Virgin Galactic for the time being. Lots to talk about here. What exactly was it that went wrong? What does it mean for their future plans? And what does it mean that they didn't release this information immediately and are now spinning it as if they put a halt to things to work on some issues where then we find out the FAA has actually grounded them. So let's jump right into that conversation here now with host Jean Grant and the Line Opinion Panel. If you've been around long enough, you might remember a local restaurant and watering hole outside Taos called the Old Blinking Light. We're talking about a different blinking light this week, and I doubt it's on anyone's list of, list of New Mexico favorites. This blinking light is on the instrument cluster of Virgin Galactic Spaceship Unity, and it tells pilots when they're in danger of flying an arc that's too shallow to keep them on a course to land at Spaceport America. Now, as first reported by the New Yorker magazine, it flashed during the July 11th flight with Richard Branson aboard. Now the FAA is investigating the flight and has grounded the ship the VSS Unity. That was a popular topic in our weekly viewer poll, by the way. Our line opinion panel is here to figure out just how big this is or might be for space tourism and for the company. Line regular, former state senator Diane Snyder returns to our panel. Good to have you back. Her former colleague in the state senate and progressive strategist Eric Griego takes another turn with us. And for the Santa Fe reporter, newspaper editor and publisher Julianne Grimm once more. Now, Julianne, how does this strike you as a you know, sort of a how the mighty have fallen story, or maybe just more as just another hiccup in an inherently tricky endeavor. Is it one or the other in the middle? How do you see this? Well, you know, you mentioned the New Yorker piece, which I think is really important. You know, this journalist, um, Nicholas Schmidl, I think is how he says his name. Um, you know, he's just recently published a book about Virgin Galactic. It came out in the spring, and he talks about how he sees a disconnect between the company's lofty rhetoric and its supersonic risks. 
And I think that's a really good way, you know, to phrase it. Obviously, he's put the thought and the time into studying this company. But um, here you've got a little bit of a suspicious timeline. You know, uh, last month, the company says, oh, we're going to ground ourselves because we really want to work on making this better and speedier, um, only to learn a month later, the FAA is grounding you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm a bit suspicious about that. And I, I think that, you know, um, the nature of this commercialization means that there's kind of this combination of entertainment and marketing and really slick packaging. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, it does kind of get in the way of a little bit of a harder look at this emerging industry. Mm-hmm. Hey, Eric, when you think about this, um, you know, it's so interesting. Virgin Galactic says no one was in danger, but then the FAA's looking into it. It's either one or the other, it seems to me. What, what's, your, what's your gut feeling on this? You know, the industry's been led by some sort of entrepreneurs, cowboys. If you think about who's trying to drive this sort of next big leap, um, mm-hmm. you know, Elon Musk and, and Bezos and, and Sir Richard Branson. These are these are folks whose whole brand is being, you know, sort of these cutting edge, you know, um, you know, kind of pioneers. And stuff. I, I will say that full disclosure, you know, I was working for Governor Richardson when we got this literally off the ground and so i any blame or whatever so i wasn't like a hypocrite i mean i have to say i wasn't overly enthusiastic but i was a good soldier but along the way and i know senator schneider can probably speak to this too along the way we were asked to not only invest you know enormous amounts of money for new mexico 220 million Mm -hmm. local communities were asked to invest but the most important thing relevant to this safety issue is we were asked to exempt every manufacturer anybody involved in the process from any kind of liability. That's right. And and they I really, voted they really pushed that. hard for that, didn't they? They yeah, really I voted against it and I was ro- mm-hmm. I was roasted by the industry mm-hmm. and it really and the whole idea was this this myth that if you don't do everything, cut corners, exempt liability, invest millions of dollars that you're going to lose this industry. And I just think that's a kind of a a theme that echoes in states like ours where we're we're looking for something big mm-hmm. to change our economy. Mm-hmm. And we were hoping that this, you know, figuratively and literally would do it, right? Lift us off. But I think I think the FAs just sort of said, wait a minute, take a breath here, right? I know you guys really want this, but you gotta be safe. It's not okay to have 1.4% of people who've who've been on these flights uh be fatalities. That's that's not sustainable, right? Mm-hmm. And um and and the other thing is just, you know, the billionaire, uh, you know, this billionaire boondoggle. I, I mean, I hope it's successful. I hope it provides economic development that it says it'll provide. If you look at the research, it's, you know, Chris Erickson over at New Mexico State did a great study about, well, you know, the, the verdict is out if it's really going to be worth all the money we're putting into it. Mm-hmm. But besides the money and the economic development, I think the more fundamental question is, is it safe, right? And I, I think um, that's a much, that's where the FAA is really about. Like, you want to make lots of money, good on you. But you got to make sure people are safe. Right. Even billionaires who go up got to be safe. Right? Good points so. there. Senator Snyder, not that anyone's crying over, you know, the perhaps agonizing decision for people who can afford the now $450,000 ticket, by the way. <laughs> but no one wants to see anyone get hurt. You know, and this has real implications for Virgin Galactic's business plan, I would think, doesn't it? I think so. But yeah. when the, the thing that, a couple of observations. One is... Things like this happened back when we were first going into space. Uh, Sometimes mistakes were corrected and everything went on great. Sometimes mistakes killed people, as we know Mm -hmm. from. So I'm hoping 
because I was, as Senator Griego said, I was one of the supporters in the Senate. Didn't not the liability, but for us investing money in the space industry. Mm-hmm. And I hope this is something that can simply be corrected. I, but I do think yes, their stock dropped tremendously uh, in in value. So I think it really does impact their um, business plan. But one other thing, I did do some reading on the gentleman from the New Yorker, mm-hmm. and it seems to me that he's just a tiny bit biased against uh, the the company. So I also take that with a grain of salt. I'm looking forward to hearing the FAA hopefully come out with a clearance that it wasn't, it was simply a mistake, an oversight that can be fixed. Because as you said, we seriously do not want anyone harmed. Right. But this is still a great, we've seen great growth around uh, the industry itself. and funniest thing is we never get much media coverage of the small companies that are doing business around the space industry Mm -hmm. and space tourism. So I'm hoping that for New Mexico and our money we've invested, that Mm -hmm. that it is something that was minor, can be corrected, and we can go forward with growing an industry in New Mexico. Good point there. Julia, let me read you in part what the FAA had to say here. Uh, quote, Virgin Galactic may not return the Spaceship 2 vehicle to flight until the FAA approves the final mishap investigation report or determines the issues related to the mishap do not affect public safety. And I have to wonder, I, I, I read that out here to say this, Virgin Galactic didn't exactly initially report this red light to the FAA. And I got I to gotta wonder if that's part and parcel with the FAA's annoyance here, so to speak, to use that word a little flip, in a flip way. That, you know, if they had maybe worked with the FAA a little bit closer, maybe it wouldn't have come down quite so harsh. I'm guessing here, I'm I'm interested in your thoughts on this. So I did a little bit of number crunching Mm -hmm. myself, you know, based on what the FAA has said. They've said that this um, ship was out of its designated airspace for a minute and 40 seconds Mm -hmm. on a 15 minute flight. Um, So that's about 11% of the time. Uh, So the question is, you know, can this spaceship stay in its lane? Can it safely interact with other air traffic and, um, you know, whatever else is going on up there um, above our heads? And I don't know if you're on a road trip and you spend 11% of the time driving in the wrong lane. (laughs) Does that put it in different perspective? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on the technicalities of how the FAA is reviewing this. Um, But, but, you know, I do think it's something that that people are going to be watching closely. And really what this does is, you know, right now it delays the flight of, you know, four months, uh, past, you know, the initial uh, time that Virgin Galactic said it w- was right. going to self ground. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, we'll be watching to see how how much of a delay uh, really results, mm-hmm. you know, from this, how long until they do uh, some more testing. They do have one more test flight that's going up, um, I believe, for the Italian Air Force. Is that oh, that's right still again. happening? That's right. I wonder. Mm-hmm. That's a good point there. It is the second Friday of the month, which means it's time for one of our most favorite things. That's our land, our environmental series. And each month on the second Friday, we bring you a signature piece, a signature story with correspondent Laura Paskus. 
This week is a good one, and I encourage you, if you like what you hear on the podcast, to go to our website, NewMexicoInFocus.org, and give it a watch. Just some beautiful images and video here. The topic is all about dark skies. We, of course, love our skies here in New Mexico, and that includes our night skies where you can just see galaxies and all sorts of uh, galactic phenomenon, but uh, not unique to New Mexico. A lot of places, light pollution is impacting on those abilities to see all those celestial bodies, and so that's what we're focused on, and we had the opportunity this summer to go to a dark sky party up at Capulin um, Volcano National Monument, where folks were gathering to grab their telescopes and their um, binoculars and just see what they could see in the night sky. And uh, so lots of beautiful imagery here. We want to thank some local photographers who shared some of their images with us as well. Wayne Suggs, Pam Dorner, and uh, Matt Schultz in particular. You see their work in there and also our great production crew here as well. Uh, Anthony Lostetter was there for that, our production manager. Also Kevin Maestas and Benjamin Yaza, and so we encourage you to go get that a look, but hear now more on our dark skies. For millions of years, throughout our evolution as a species, we have looked to the same night sky. We've told stories, navigated, wondered what lies beyond our own beautiful Earth. That sky belonged to all of us, not just a few. You know, space is so big, a lot of people say that it makes them feel insignificant. We are very tiny in the grand scheme of things, but being able to look out and see some of these things that are so far away, so big, the, the scale of this is so unimaginable, and yet we are able to take part in that. We are part of that. and. So in one sense you feel small, in another sense you feel big, and it's, it's just kind of magic. Today we celebrate dark places, call them dark sky parks, and the National Park Service holds star parties, treating the night sky with the same reverence as deep canyons or remote mountaintops. We can look at the ring nebula, and the ring nebula is exactly what it sounds like. It's a ring floating in the sky. A it's almost a perfect ring. And what it is, is it's a dying star. The day that I discovered the things that I can see through an amateur telescope is a day that I'll remember till the day I die. I saw objects that looked like diamonds scattered on velvet. I saw clouds. And I saw galaxies. I saw galaxies that were three or four hundred million light years away. And the idea of then showing that to somebody and saying the light from this galaxy left that galaxy long before dinosaurs even walked the earth and seeing their faces just go, whoa, that's just, that's as cool as it gets. You can't beat that. Isabel and Rick from Brownsville, Texas, stopped at the Capulin Star Party while on vacation. We're all stardust. We're all stardust. We're all part of the universe, you know? So it's, it's just, you know, something that, you know, you gaze upon on, on a daily basis if you're out and you wonder, you know? It's just beautiful at night. But over the past century, we've steadily changed our relationship with the sky. 
In his novel, Contact, Carl Sagan wrote about cosmic isolationism, of how, without even noticing, most people cut themselves off from the sky. We learned more about what lies beyond our own world. We've looked deeper into space, but our own sky view? We lit it up, concealed so much of what we used to see. One of the things that we lose in terms of our children, um, particularly, is we are limiting the scope of their imagination and their curiosity. And that has, of course, tremendous repercussions for the future. We lose the appreciation that we personally get from looking at the sky. If the sky is nothing but a glow above you from the streetlights, then there is nothing to see and there's nothing to appreciate. Finn says there are simple ways to fight light pollution. Turn off outside lights, light cities more responsibly, even close your curtains at night. One of the nice things about light pollution is that it doesn't destroy the night. It just hides it. So you can get the light back like that if you just turn off the lights. There are not a lot of environmental things where the solution is so easy. Carl Sagan wrote about how at the very moment that humans discovered the scale of the universe and found that our most unconstrained fancies were in fact dwarfed by the true dimensions of even the Milky Way galaxy. We took steps that ensured that our descendants would be unable to see the stars at all. But we can change that. We can protect the skies all of our ancestors watched. We can turn out the lights and look up and wonder together. For New Mexico in Focus and Our Land, I'm Laura Paskus. Back to the line opinion panel now as we dive into the issue of charter schools, which have long been debated here in New Mexico. These are public schools. They get chartered by either the local school district or the state. But obviously the funding goes to those schools, which can have an impact on the public schools at large. And Albuquerque Public Schools, the school board recently took up whether or not to send a letter to the state legislature encouraging a moratorium on new charter schools in New Mexico because of those funding issues, and especially coming at the end of the COVID-19 pandemic, which we know has been hard on all public schools, all schools in general. And so we know this is an issue that a lot of communities have faced. What's the balancing point here? A lot of these charter schools offer a bit of a different opportunity, and that is best for some students. We've also had scandals with charter schools uh, that are, are run usually by not necessarily education folks or with that background. We've had money bis being misallocated. We've had a bunch of different things, so there's good and bad to be talked about here. We'd love to know what you think. Is a moratorium a good idea to just take a temporary pause, study the issue a little bit better, see how it impacts the overall education system, or is that just a death knell of sorts if you issue a moratorium like that on something that gives families choice in their education? We'd love to hear what you think about that. But here now back to host Gene Grant and the line. Should New Mexico take a step back to look at the impacts and efficacy of charter schools? 
It's a question that pops up regularly in the state legislature and the Albuquerque Public School Board recently considered and later postponed a decision on whether or not to send a letter to lawmakers supporting a temporary halt to the creation of additional charter schools. Senator Snyder, do you think this pandemic is driving this new interest in a possible moratorium? What's going on here? Well, truthfully, I hadn't thought of that aspect of it. No, I don't think so. Okay. I think, uh, I, and I'm biased on this subject, so I just think that- In, in what sense um, you're, is your bias? Well, I'm very pro-charter school. Okay. Uh, I, I think it's one more step in trying to eliminate charter schools. And I have to laugh, when they were first created, that primarily the teachers union said, oh, it's the first step toward creating vouchers. Vouchers will have to come out of this. And that hadn't happened so far, at least not in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like it's, I think it's, once again, I think it's all politics. I don't, I think that. But let, let me ask the, you this, Senator, the numbers, the numbers are not politically driven. Is there a sense of that lower enrollment possibilities from this pandemic? Lower enrollment from the pandemic, yes, yeah. for sure. But I, I think that has more to do with homeschooling ah. than it does with charter schools. Mm -hmm. And I think people have found it. And I know some people said, well, we were so successful with homeschooling. Our kids are really jumping ahead. We, we'd like to keep doing this. So they are. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the numbers that we hear are the kids want to get back in school, but mom and dad think it's great. Um, so I think the numbers we're hearing are a little bit distorted. I don't think it's the charter schools creating the lack of enrollment. Okay. However, that's an option that parents now have. Mm -hmm. So if they're taking advantage of it, then in fact, it would impact the individual, like APS schools. That's a good point. But, let, me, let me swing Senator Grego on this point here. Opponents say charter schools often outperform public schools and a moratorium takes away a family's right, what Senator was just getting to, a family's right to choose. They also say many of those charter schools cater to underserved or vulnerable populations as well. Is that a valid argument in your view? You know, those are talking points. I mean, I'm not a, yeah. I'm not an expert on the research, but I do know that the, the results have been mixed. I mean, there's some schools that really outperform. And remember, charter schools are public schools. You okay. have to mm -hmm. admit people by lottery. So there's a lot of confusion around them being private schools. Mm -hmm. They're public schools. So um, there are schools that absolutely outperform uh, public schools in Albuquerque and around the state. There are also some schools that are, frankly, pretty ill-conceived and with folks who just don't know what they're doing. We've had several scandals around that. So yeah. you know, I'm, I'm one of those rare animals where I'm a hardcore public education supporter was what came up through the public education system. And I happen to have a kid in a charter school and I helped actually start a couple charter schools. I think where they work well for kids who need something different to keep them engaged, whatever that is, is that is that extra help or arts or whatever it is. I think that that's a, that's an area that they serve. I am sympathetic, just to be fair, that we have to think through this idea that maybe diverting kids away from their neighborhood schools as opposed to investing in their neighborhood schools um, is something we have to just be honest about. Is that is that really happening? Um, I think that the, 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 the pandemic has really sort of kind of um, 
poured salt on an open wound for folks who, who are worried about charters, their effect on resources, their effect on diverting mm. uh, educators and so on and, and kids to neighborhood schools. You know, not everybody has a great neighborhood school. Uh, a lot of the communities around the state do, but not all do. Mm-hmm. And, and they have to choose as a parent, you have to choose like if you still want to have a public school, but you want to have a different kind of experience for your kid. And that's what we decided. We decided, you know, our, our, our son really was wanted something a little bit different in his mm-hmm. education. And we supported that. Mm-hmm. Had he not gotten into the lottery, by the way, they, they get him by lottery. He probably would have gone to his neighborhood school. And, and I think that's, that's, that's certainly uh, an option that parents always have, in addition to keeping their kids home, if that's Good what point. they think is best for them. Good point there. You know, Julianne, as we mentioned, APS considered sending a letter to lawmakers encouraging a temporary moratorium, but they backed off, at least for now, after the public outcry. I'm wondering, do you expect other school districts to also consider jumping into this debate? Well, you know, this debate, as others have pointed out, is not a new one. Right. Um, certainly, it's something that, that you know, uh, districts all over the state have been dealing with. You know, uh, Santa Fe Public Schools is not immune to that. They had kind of a well-publicized um, discussion, a dispute with a charter school that was, you know, using a building that, that Santa Fe Public Schools wanted to use. Um, I think it's also of note that, you know, back in 2019, when, when this bill was at the legislature and didn't go anywhere, mm-hmm. um, Shelby Perea from the Albuquerque Journal reports that APS opposed the bill. They didn't want a moratorium then. Um, so I, I was kind of wondering, I don't, I don't follow APS politics real closely, but I'm sure the, the board composition has changed since then. And, and we do know that the enrollment numbers have dropped again since then. And this is alarming you know, to school officials that are trying to make plans. And I think there's this um, instinct to feel threatened you know, by the charter schools, um, as I think has has come up also. So I think, you know, we we haven't solved it. And um, and I don't know that the the legislature placing a moratorium would necessarily solve it. I mean, we often have this moratorium ideas like, well, we need to stop stop all the action so we can study it. And and, you know, we can study it without stopping it and without, you know, affecting educational outcomes for kids that are hoping to stay in their charter school or, or charter schools that are, you know, getting ready to launch. So mm-hmm. um, I, I definitely think we could stand to have, you know, study on this issue. It's a good point there. You know, Senator Snyder, I got to wonder if we're sort of just in a bubble here because we really haven't seen an increase in charter schools in the last five years. I mean, when you think about it, there's around 96 statewide serving 28,000 kids. Is this much ado about nothing? I mean, this is 20,000 kids. It's not exactly a ton of kids. It isn't. And and if you were t- saying those 20,000 were all in Albuquerque, right. that would be almost nothing. Good point there. But I don't know and don't have the statistics, and maybe they do, on charter schools in rural areas. I don't have much information on that. I, of course, I'm, I hear everything about Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. But, I, yeah, in some ways it is, because if you take out two years basically of pandemic, then you only have a few years of things being, have been skewed, I think, by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe it's premature to be doing that, but I also agree with Julianne. You don't have to shut them down to study them and see, or they're not shutting them down, let me get that corrected, Mm -hmm. Um, but we don't have to stop creating charter schools to study their effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And like Senator Griego said, some have been outstanding, really, really good, 
really beneficial for the student because we know we know this is a fact kids learn differently in different environments so what makes one child learn then i i mean to me the idea of music and theater and science where that interest because part of schooling is getting the child to pay attention that's right and the, that if you can do let me, it let with, me do this senator let me let me swing to yeah. senator gregor real quick just for uh this last half a minute <laughs> Senator, some high-profile charter schools have run into financial issues. You know, is there enough oversight? Are, are, we, at, are we in lockstep with the needs of the charter schools and what we need as, as citizens? You know, there have been some really uh, bad actors um, who started charter schools and took advantage of, mm -hmm. of public funding. So, and I think most of them have been held accountable. Um, so the short answer is, Gene, I think there's always room for more oversight. Right. APS decided they were going to charter their own school. So now as your charter school in Albuquerque, you can either go to the APS system or you can go to the state. And that's, that's right. the way it works here. So first of all, you don't just show up one day and open a school. You have to, you have, to have a charter. You have to have a governing board. There's a lot of work to be done. Mm -hmm. And if you don't perform, you can be shut down. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the arguments for charter schools is unlike some low-performing schools that for whatever reason aren't succeeding, right. it's hard to shut them down. Charter schools, you can be shut down if you have corrupt management or if you're just not performing you can be shut down and, and it's I think, happened that's right yeah and it's happened so but i do i think there's always room for more oversight we had that conversation around you know maybe the state auditor or somebody should really be doing more oversight but look at what happened at aps with the, <laughs> the recent scandal so i think everybody could use a little more yeah. oversight to be honest with you. Good, good point good final thought there that's all the time we have right now on that topic but we'd love to know what you think Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter and let us know if you support a temporary moratorium on charter schools and why. Up next for our group, a new hotline is on the way for behavioral health emergencies, but will its promises ring hollow? Downwinders, don't know if that is a term you are familiar with, but if you've been around here in New Mexico a while, you've probably heard of that. That's the term for people who lived downwind of the Trinity test site where the first atomic bomb was detonated. And these are folks that there have been uh, a slew of health-related issues uh, that have come up in huge percentages in those populations, namely all sorts of varieties of cancer. Over the years uh, since the atomic project started here in New Mexico, there have been different groups of people who have been compensated by the federal government for the damage inflicted uh, from the fallout and, and just the explosive tests here in New Mexico as well as other places, namely Nevada. Uh, the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium has been working for years to get those downwinders included in that Compensation Act. It's known as RECA. So far, that has never happened, and uh, there is efforts afoot, have been for a while now, to change that, and there may be some movement on that in the near future. And so correspondent Russell Contreras sat down with uh, Tina Cordova of the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium to talk more about the story, the effects on the people there. It is really unfathomable in many ways. Uh, as folks did not have warning of the tests and, of course, communication, what it was at the time, didn't get a lot of information afterwards. You're going to hear stories about how people, once they knew what was going on, went into the test site, took things home from the test sites, and, of course, lots of health complications since then. 
and also just the frustrations of not being able to get added into this Compensation Act to date uh, and an update on efforts to get that changed. So here now, correspondent Russell Contreras. Tina, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Well, I'm glad to be here, Russ, and I appreciate the invitation to be able to share with you about the New Mexico downwinders. Before we get started about the pending federal leg legislation about the downwinders, take us back to July 1945. What happened to the communities of Tularosa and Mescalero Apache during the Trinity test? Well, first of all, we have to remember that in 1945, people didn't have access to televisions or radios or telephones and there was very little communication. So most people have said to me that they were asleep. Uh, they were literally knocked out of bed by the blast and experienced a light like no other they'd ever seen before because the tests provide, uh, actually produced more light and more heat than the sun. So you can imagine what that experience was like for them. And people were frightened. They thought it was the end of the world. Uh, they gathered together as families and some told me we prayed the rosary. Uh, people wondered what had happened. Obviously, they didn't know what they had experienced, but the most salient point is that the bomb produced massive fallout that basically went in every direction and became part of the environment forevermore. And so people's lives were forever changed. Their environments were, their environment and their lives were invaded by the fallout that was produced from the Trinity test. And what kind of stories did the elders tell you about the Trinity test when they went to go visit? Because they didn't know what happened and you could still walk to the site days afterwards to see what went on. What did they tell you? Oh my gosh, I've had some really amazing stories shared with me about that. I mean, there was a time, like you said, that they allowed people to freely go out there unencumbered. So people went out there and picnicked. They took children on field trips and fed them out there. Uh, I've had people tell me, members of my own family, we packed our pockets with Trinitite, we ate lunch out there, and then we went home. Um, I have a dear friend in Tularosa who said that her parents and her aunt and uncle went out there. Her aunt was pregnant at the time, and when the baby was born, the, the dear child was born without eyes. Um, so there was such a lack of concern for human health that they didn't even close the site to visitors. And I understand that into the 50s, there, were, there was still unfettered access to the site, a radioactive site. I mean, when you go out there today, uh, there's signs everywhere warning about the dangers. And imagine what the dangers were, you know, in the months and years just after the test and allowing people to take things out of there. It's against the law now, and there's signs that warn against that today. But imagine back then, they, people took things. I had another lady contact me that said, my father went out there in the days afterwards and he salvaged a bunch of steel and he built a swing set for us and he brought back what looked like parachute material. And my mom used it to make curtains for our home and christening dresses for the children in our family. And she said, everybody's been sick and dying ever since. The federal government at the time has always maintained that the wind blew the radioactive material away from communities where people were living, where you, your family grew up. But people would later say, yes, but there were small um, clouds of pumes that came back. What kind of stories did folks tell you that 
they went outside and experienced ash on homes and clothes and so forth. Well, that's the oral histories that have been recorded by us through, throughout these many years, 16 years that we've been working on this. Uh, people have told me those stories over and over, and they're too similar to be, uh, you know, untrue. <laughs> and so what people say is that they experienced an ash that fell from the sky for days afterwards, which is probably very likely. The government didn't even have people in place for 24 hours monitoring what happened with the fallout. So, for example, in the community of Carrizozo, uh, the day of the blast, the Geiger counters went off the charts. That's very well documented. It's the only town that we have true documentation uh, that the government has provided. And the Geiger counters went off the charts and they called the men who were there physically monitoring the fallout off and said, you have to get out of there, it's dangerous. And so we don't know whatever happened in Tularosa or Socorro or Alamogordo um, or Riodoso. And But we can rely on people's memories of that day. And people have told me that ash fell from the sky, it got on everything. And people were living very organic lives. They were depending on the rainwater, uh, collection of rainwater for drinking and cooking purposes. They were using the water out of the acequias or the ditch systems. Tularosa has the largest ditch system in New Mexico. And people were relying on that water and it was now fully contaminated. To say nothing of the fact that we also didn't have grocery stores because no one had refrigeration. We had ice boxes. And so people couldn't keep things refrigerated like we do now. And you couldn't go to a grocery store and buy meat, produce, or dairy. Everything that you ate was produced at your own home by, you know, using your own means. And of course, all of that was now contaminated. It was July when our cisterns would have been filling up with water because it was the monsoon season. And it was the height of the harvest when women would have been canning and drying everything they could get, you know, out of their gardens uh, for the upcoming winter. And so truly, we were maximally exposed to radiation as a result of the type of test at Trinity and the fact that we lived these very organic lifestyles dependent, entirely dependent on the earth, the environment for uh, our well-being. Then the rare cancers came. Um, when did residents realize or understand that they were suffering from different forms of cancer that were unusual and not the cancer seen in other parts of New Mexico? Well, people started to people literally started getting sick about 10 years after the test. Within that first 10 years, we started to see uh, people dying from cancer at a time when no one had ever heard the word cancer in their communities. Uh, a good example is what happened in my own family. I'm the fourth generation in my family to have cancer since 1945. The two great-grandfathers that I had living in Tularosa alive at the time both got stomach cancer in 1955, almost at the very same time, what they called stomach cancer, at a time when no one even knew what that meant. And there was no treatment for them. They sent them home on morphine and they, they suffered a great deal before they finally passed away. Um, and so there's a latency period associated with exposure to radiation and then when you manifest disease. But people started to realize that there was something wrong because we were seeing so much sickness and so much death. And, you know, it wasn't until much later on that people started connecting the dots. And honestly, there was very little known about this until we started our organization, the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium, or TBDC for short. There was really no organized effort to bring attention to the negative health effects suffered by the people of New Mexico as a result of Trinity until we started doing our work. And now, 
so many people have come forward. I receive information from people all over the United States because people have left and moved up their places. I received a health survey this week in the mail from Georgia and the woman wanted to document her husband's cancer and death. He was uh, a man who lived, uh, you know, his early years in Carrizozo and, and landed up suffering the consequences of that. And I think another thing too that I cannot, cannot um, uh, miss telling everyone about is that we had casualties from Trinity and it's documented now and they were our babies. After a 10 year decline in infant mortality in the state of New Mexico because of the advent of antibiotics and better hygienic practices, we went from something like 33 babies per thousand dying in New Mexico and in the months ab right after Trinity, the months of August, September, October, November, December, we saw these huge spikes in infant mortality and we went to uh, something like 100 babies per thousand. And these babies were dying from a dysentery-like syndrome. And a healthcare worker contacted the Manhattan District Project and said, do you all know of anything that we might be able to do or something that may be causing this? Because everything we're doing is not working. And, and the Manhattan District Project decided to deny and deflect and absolutely lie about it. And our babies died. Our babies died that year. And that is like the most heartbreaking part of the story for me and something that I think is unconscionable. When you started bringing this to the attention um, to elected officials, what was the initial reaction uh, that New Mexico folks, residents of the Trinity test, should be included in the radio, Radiation Compensation Act? Because right now they're not. What was the reaction you got from elected officials? Were they engaged or did they ignore you at first? So RECA, the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act is a 31-year-old program that has paid $2.5 billion in claims to downwinders of the Nevada test site. New Mexico is also downwind of the Nevada test site, very well documented. When they went to Nevada and started the testing, they put monitoring sites all over the West, and there were monitoring sites in New Mexico. Those monitoring sites did show that we received radiation here through the summer of 1962 but the compensation ends at the New Mexico-Arizona border, as if I always say there's a lead curtain there that somehow has offered us protection to the radiation that we were regularly receiving from the Nevada test site. When we were first alerted to this and we started meeting with our elected officials, it was really interesting because there was this, uh, this sort of, uh, almost as if they didn't know or didn't understand that people here had been damaged. Um, but I have asked the question over and over, why were we not included in RECA in 1990 when it was conceived, when it was first uh, enacted as a bill in the United States Congress? And I've had a variety of different answers. No one was looking out for you. Lately I've been saying, but we had two senators like all the other states that are included. Um, no one was looking out for you. And, and now the, the regular answer we receive is adding you is going to cost too much, <laughs> which adds incredible insult to injury when you think about the sacrifice and the suffering that the people of New Mexico um, you know, have, have been through since for 76 years, essentially, for 76 years. And so you know, we're, we're not interested in hearing excuses any longer. Um, if people decide 
elected officials decide to remain complacent knowing this story now, knowing what we've uncovered, if people decide to remain complacent in that, that makes them complicit in, in perpetuating a lie because the government has always controlled the messaging. They said then and they say now that the area was remote and uninhabited, but we know that that is not true. We now have a map that actually says, you know, that at 50 miles, for example, there were 14,000 people living, men, women, and children living adjacent to the test site. That is not remote and uninhabited. At 150 miles, there's close to half a million people living there at the time. And so, you know, everyone knows the difference between right and wrong, and this is a social justice issue. It's about correcting a mistake. It was um, maybe not planned to be the mistake that it was, but there was health consequences and the government did know some things in advance. They knew there would be fallout and they knew that radiation was dangerous to human health. So the idea that they didn't know people would be harmed is absolutely not true. Was it possible racial that you guys weren't included because the testing side of folks affected were Hispanic and Native American? Could that have also been a factor? Well, you have, it begs a question. You have to ask that question. The preponderance of people who were affected in New Mexico are people of color, Native Americans, Mexicanos, people who have lived here for hundreds if not thousands of years. The preponderance of people who have received compensation through RICA are not that. And so it begs the question. I mean, I, I always wonder if that's not the reason that New Mexico is a sacrifice zone. We have the cradle to grave process taking place here. They open up the earth and take out the uranium. You know, we develop and test nuclear weapons here and then we, they bury the waste here. We're under consideration now for a high level waste uh, repository. And the people most affected by this have always been people of color. The uranium miners are, you know, members of the Navajo Nation, Laguna and Acoma Pueblo. Those people were harmed greatly. There, were, there are 500 abandoned uranium mines. They took 32 million tons of uranium out of the earth and basically abandoned the mines. And people live adjacent to these mine sites. So you have to ask the question, how much does environmental racism play in the idea that the people who were so horribly harmed in New Mexico have been left to deal with it on their own? In the last 30 seconds, how hopeful are you are that this Radiation, radiation Act will get amended and extended and include people of, of New Mexico? I am very hopeful right now because for the first time ever, we have members of Congress from other states who are greatly interested in this because their constituents for the first time will not be able to apply to the fund either. So extending it is gonna have to take place for them. And, and that brings new people to the table to support the amendments to RECA and new people supporting the idea that we should be added as well. Tina, thank you so much. Thank you. That will do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus. But as always, follow us on your favorite social media platform. We're in just about all of them. Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. We'll keep you up to date on what we're doing through the week, what's coming up. And you can drop us a line, let you know, let us know what you think about the podcast or any of the things we're working on here for the show. We really do appreciate that feedback. Do us a favor as well. Leave us a review here on the podcast. That helps us out a bunch. And until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.